Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Hello and welcome back to the Prep to Pro NBA Draft Podcast. My name is Ben Pfeiffer and as always, I'm joined by my co-host Max Carlin. Max, how's it going today? I'm doing well, Ben. How are you? I'm doing well. And today we have a pretty cool guest on the show and we are joined by TJ Farrick, an assistant coach at Swarthmore College. So TJ, how's it going? It's going well. Thanks guys for having me on. Uh, I say that as someone who sounds like he's been in a podcast before, but I haven't been. So (laughs) you guys uh, having me on for the first time and looking forward to it. There is no shortage of action going on with our partners over at betonline.ag. The sports world is slowly making its way back with the NBA announcing its return in late July. But right now, UFC, boxing, NASCAR, and international soccer have all resumed play, and BetOnline has the best odds slash lines for their best upcoming games and matches. Need more? BetOnline has simulated NFL, NBA, and UFC happening live every day for our devout gamblers to check out. BetOnline also offers hundreds of live casino games, poker tournaments, and the best props in the business. Visit BetOnline.ag on your computer or mobile device and join now to receive your welcome bonus. BetOnline.ag, your online wagering experts. Yeah, after the episode, there's probably going to be one or two things where you you message us and you're like, did I actually say that? But uh, <laughs> but, but it'll, it'll be fine. It'll all be yeah, fine. It's always okay. Um, so what we're going to talk about today is that, um, I mean, a portion of, of draft work is definitely about uh, player evaluation. But what we're all trying to do in this is project. Um, so what's central to that is player development. And it's really under-discussed. Uh, you know, aspect of, of the, you know, draft evaluation. Um, but for, I mean, the problem with that and, and kind of, you know, why, why it's the case that player development is uh, neglected is that for amateur draft enthusiasts, like, like ourselves, uh, player development, it can, you know, be very unapproachable. It's a bit of a black box and you really don't know what's going on behind uh, closed doors. So that's why we're bringing in TJ because as a coach, you know, he works directly in the field of player development. Uh, and I think he has a you know really interesting background and in, uh, process and, and philosophies on player development. Uh, so we're really excited to, to, you know, help to have him uh, tell us about, about uh, his path and uh, help us apply that to our, to our draft analysis. So uh, TJ, you want to tell us a little bit about uh, your path? Sure. Yeah. And um, so, so I'm going to start in the, in the middle. Um, instead of the beginning, uh, and I'm going to start in August of 2017. In August 2017, I took a scouting class with a guy named Ilan Vinokuro. Uh, and Ilan is now a scout with, um, with the Los Angeles Lakers. But at the time, he was an independent scout who was running a, a company called EV Hoops. And he did a scouting class in the summer after all his draft work was done called Scout You. Uh, and 
I did I didn't really know it at the time, but um, taking that class and kind of uh, it, it's kind of it was kind of a get out of it what you put into it. I took it with one of my friends. Um, taking that class, I put a ton of work into it, and I got a lot out of it in terms of really changing the way in which I saw the game, uh, rather than looking at the entirety of the game and the X's and O's, I was looking at individual players and individual skill sets. Uh, and so that's, that's kind of one point, um, where I would start along my path. Uh, That following season was my eighth as a high school coach. Um, and so I was coaching, I was the head coach of a JV team and assistant on varsity for eight years at at a school, right. Where I still work at called Penn charter in Philadelphia. Um, and there were several things that happened during that season, which made me ask myself uh, basically a pretty simple question that I thought I knew the answer to, which was have I been approaching this whole coaching thing the right way? Uh, and the answer was no. And do I really know anything about player skill development? And the answer again to that was no, I don't. I thought I did, but I really didn't. And I think that that's perhaps a boat that many coaches are in. Um, and so what I did was that spring, this is 2018, I set out to learn more about skill development and really like dove into researching the conceptual underpinnings of uh, how it all works. Uh, And I would liken it to to this. um, In my first eight years of coaching, if I wanted a ball screen play, or my first like five or four years, if I wanted ball screen plays, I would just go online and accumulate ball screen plays, right? I just look up Brad Stevens, uh, you know, like, uh, or like specific ball screen plays like literal actual and I would write them down uh, and then through time I would I transitioned from the from that X and O understanding that that knowledge to um, doing things like watching Ed Tori Messina do a do a whole clinic on ball screen uh, ball screen offense or uh, understanding like the Villanova four out one in ball screen continuity um, so I moved from this level of knowing things to understanding the conceptual underpinnings and that's kind of the journey that I've taken with, with regards to player development. I knew a bunch of drills and I thought I understood the conceptual underpinnings. Uh, but over the last few years, through my research and through practice, uh, I've been trying, to, I've been coming to basically a deeper conceptual understanding of how, what this all looks like. Yeah. So w- when I reached out to you at first a couple of weeks ago, um, you're just looking for, for resources to, to learn about player development. Uh, one of the things you pointed me toward was uh, Chris Oliver's podcast, uh, the basketball podcast, which is actually on on our network, uh, Armchair. Um, and I was so I was listening today to one of the one of the episodes that you directed me toward, which was episode twelve with Alex Sarama. Um, and so one of the, one of the like the main ideas of that podcast was that practice in a you know traditional sense is very static. It's very clean. It's not at all representative of a game um and you're not trying to train basketball players to be good at drills that you're doing in practice you're trying to train basketball players to be good at playing basketball um so how do you go about fostering these environments in a practice setting where you are uh uh, you know adopting this this sort of game approach rather than traditional drills that we you know that and you know any basketball coach has known for the last uh, however many decades Right. So that's a great question. I, I, I'm one thing that I would say, again, I'm pretty much two years into this process and I'm still trying to figure that out very much myself and just every day talking to people and working and thinking and researching to try to kind of figure out how to optimize player development 
in practice. And so one thing that I would make a distinction between first is, is practice, which is the, the team or the group, right? And individual skill training, right? Which is uh, like a lot of what is done in a static environment. And so the answer is, to, the answer is going to be different based on which one of those we're talking about. So do we want to do you want to start with talking about like like practice practice like actual team practice? Yeah, let's start yeah, with let's with team with practice. Yeah, let's start with that. Okay, and and I'll I want I'll start by talking about the youth level um, first, and like maybe let's start like I don't know middle school, like 14, 15 year old, right? Um, and and the simple answer is the the way to develop skill is to play basketball. Right. Is to, uh, I, I have one elite skill myself and it's parallel parking. And I developed, <laughs> I developed the skill of parallel parking because I lived in South Philadelphia my entire life and I had to parallel park in so many different environments. Right. But that is still kind of in a static and not complex system when you're parallel parking. Basketball is a complex dynamic system. So the way that you would develop skill, um, I'll take, for instance, I'm an English teacher, right? So when I, when I um, try to develop writing skills, what I do is I go from part to whole. So I break down a paragraph into like five component parts and basically like the topic sentence, context, quote, quote integration, quote analysis, right? And then kids will kind of fill that out. My students will fill that out. And that's a, a pretty efficient way for them to learn how to write, at least at a basic level. When we're talking about basketball skill, Instead of going from part to whole, what I've learned over time, this is Chris Oliver's thing, right? This is the game's approach. It's, it's actually whole, part, whole. So live play, coach intervention, maybe a little breakdown, and then back to live play. Um, and that's whether it's five on five. He talks a lot about small-sided games, three on three, two on two, a lot of one-on-ones. Um, that's, that's where kind of skill development, I think, what it should look like on the youth level. And it, that's what it does look like in many European countries, uh, specifically Spain. Uh, and it also probably looks a lot like that in Canada. And I think a lot of that comes from their background in soccer, right? So the so soccer skill development had like, that happens in a small side of game scenario. Um, and whereas American skill development happens in very isolated in an isolated training environment. Yeah, I mean, the, the English analogy makes a lot of sense to me because it was always something that, that kind of bothered me. Like, you know, I, I'm a college student, so going through high school and college, it just it, yeah, that's an efficient way of teaching someone how to write, but it's also a very formulaic way. And in writing, that works because you can approach, you can't approach everything the same way, but you can approach things generally with a set formula. But one of the one of the key points that um, that Chris Oliver was making on on that podcast was that game situations no no two scenarios are alike you're talking about a very messy situation where you really just need reps upon reps upon reps because you're going to see different things every time no two uh like underhanded layup attempts are going to be the same you're going to need these different these different scenarios um so i mean i guess the how do you how do you emulate that beyond just having you know small games like how do you how do you institute drills that simulate a sort of a game environment without just being an outright game. Right. So, so that's, that's where I'm talking about like individual skill training, right? So like mm-hmm. that individual isolated on air skill training. And, and the one thing that Chris will talk about a lot uh, is, is that the thing, the, 
what I would call it is like a misnomer. When we call something game-like, uh, you know, like you set up a chair on the wing and someone curls off the chair and shoots a shot, right? And they call that a game-like action. Uh, it's sure that it looks like a game, but there's nothing about that environment that's game-like, right? Because there's no one else on the floor. What's game-like is making a decision, right? Because the, the first part of shooting, the first part of finishing, the first part of dribbling, the first part of any, any kind of isolated skill in a game, the first part of it is the decision to shoot the decision to dribble, the decision to finish overhand rather than underhand. Um, and so when that's one way to kind of add challenge in, a, in an isolated on-air skill environment. Um, that And Chris, Chris uh, that, that's kind of Chris's whole thing, is, bas- is basketball decision training, BDT. Um, and then there's, there's another thing that I'll talk about on top of that, and that's he'll talk about this, and this is Brian McCormick talks about a lot too, is there are three elements to, to skill, right? There's movement, there's perception, or where there's there's action and there's perception and then there's concept, right? Concept, we have to throw out in the isolated uh, environment because like the cons, there's no, there's no one driving and you're moving in the isolated environment. So what we need to do is couple action with perception, or if we're doing the action itself, like the action of shooting, it needs to be movement-based rather than game-like based uh and so after we got done i guess talking about this i'll I'll direct you to a guy named mike dunn mike dunn's a shooting coach and what you'll see with his shooting is a lot of it is movement based instead of game like he's not gonna like curl off he's not gonna um you know do like a bunch of step backs off a chair or something like that uh what he does looks very weird uh (laughs) he's gonna he's gonna he's gonna dribble in he's gonna spin he's gonna he's gonna um like wrap the ball around himself a couple times, maybe jump up in the air and then shoot. Um, but if you try that, what you'll realize is it kind of feels like what you do in a game. It just doesn't look like it at all. So that's a long way of kind of answering that question. Yeah. So you mentioned, I mean, your point about decision-making is, you know, a, a, an important one to, to the draft, especially, you know, we always talk about how, how important it is to value uh, good decision makers because at its at its core, basketball is really a game of decisions. I mean, everything done on the court is a decision. So, I mean, we often think of the conception that you don't feel decision making is difficult to improve. So, I mean, in like a practice or like an individual skill setting, how how do you go about improving, you know, in-game functional decision making? And do you think there's like a soft cap or a hard cap on how much it can be improved? Or are you know you're are some players, you know, naturally predisposed to have, you know, faster processors or be better decision makers? Or do you think a lot of that is attributed to the work they've done, you know, in skill development or in practice off the court? Yeah, I think a lot of it is, is attributed to, is, can be attributed to how much they've simply played basketball, right? The decision making is just, that comes down to like in-game reps. And I'll talk, I'll talk a little later probably about Kobe um, and the, the misapplication of Kobe in youth basketball. It, by the time Kobe was 22 years old, how many NBA games do you think he played? Uh, by the time he was 22, 400, uh, maybe? Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, about, so let's about say 400, that. and that's on top of high school. And so, yeah, anytime, yeah. anytime someone cites Kobe as saying, go to the gym at 6 a.m. and shoot 500 shots by yourself, mm-hmm. and that's where you get better, that's what Kobe was doing later in his career. Earlier in Kobe's career, Kobe was putting in minutes, 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 minutes in games, and then also in practice, of course, too. Um, and so, um, so the decision, so to come back to your question, which is about like how does decision making processing speed happen it happens by playing a lot and i'm gonna i have a hopefully a treat for you guys coming up t 
TJ has well, left I, the room. I have a story, have a story they're going to tell about, about James Harden. It's from my roommate, Ty. Ty's a player development coach of the Sixers. He just got home from the facility. Uh, and it's about how much Harden played in college. Uh, so, but back to your question, um, decision-making, when we're talking about decisions, like just in the, in the um, isolated environment, I'm just talking about the decision to shoot or not shoot, right? Or the decision and how quickly you make that decision. And Chris talks about that a lot. We're not worried about, he's not worried about in the game's approach, the execution of the shot, whether it goes in or not. I mean, like obviously he wanted to go in all the time, but he's worried about how quickly do you make the decision to shoot once you, once you get the external cue. So how much does it worry you when you come across someone like James Wiseman this year? I think it's an especially relevant example where he's a 19 year old who is now losing an entire year of development or some, someone that we've talked about in the past, actually probably an even more relevant example would be Harry Giles, who due to injuries, I think missed two full years uh, in, you know, while uh, in, you know, those prime development years of his, of his late teens. Um, so how much do you think when you're a, you know, a 19 year old then who has a, a deficiency in making decisions quickly how much do you think you're kind of just stuck that like you've lost your chance to to develop that decision making? Well, I'd actually ask, what do you guys think about that? Because I, I don't look at these guys as much as you'd like. I, I've seen a, a little bit of Wiseman. I didn't really I haven't really seen any Giles that much at all. Um, but what like taking Giles as an example, maybe what do you think about? So, what? yeah, earlier or like a few months ago, I went back and I was watching um, Tatum in EYBL and FIBA. And so he, I watched one game that was against Giles in at uh, Peach Jam. And then I watched a couple games of FIBA where they were teammates. And I think it was pretty evident that Giles was a low feel, slow decision maker at that age level. And this was, this was, I think, after his first catastrophic knee injury and before his second. So he had missed a fair amount of time. Uh, and I mean, it's, it's hard to draw a causal line there. Like I, or I got, it's not hard, but you, you can't definitively draw a causal line there. But I mean, one would think that there's, there's some correlation at least. Um, and yeah, I mean, I think it was pretty evident and I think that it kind of continues to be the case in the NBA with him. Uh, I think that there are very few examples of guys that we see coming out as prospects who don't really seem to understand the game at a high level thinking Jalen Brown here who then turn into like high level defensive manipulators or something like that. I mean, I think to an extent you can, you can learn like pretty basic stuff. Like I, I don't put it past any NBA player to learn to like hit the weak side corner out of a pick and roll at this point. Like it seems like so many guys are capable of doing that, but once you get more complex than that, I, I, I don't know. I'm definitely skeptical. I think that, this sort of thing stems from seeing a lot of game action. Uh, but, you know, if you if you overhaul, say, the way that you engage in player development, maybe it is possible. Or, or especially with um, the way the G League uh, usage is just becoming more prevalent. Like, can, can you take a guy who has a chance to be a ball handler and just throw him into the G League and now he's getting looks at all different coverages? He's, you know, playing a role where where his skills or his, his, his mind and skills have to reach a certain level so that they can, so that neither holds the other back. Um, I think it's, I think it's something worth monitoring because I, it seems like player development is on a positive trajectory in this country. Uh, but, but I, I don't know. I think it's, it, it's definitely a 
one of the most crucial yeah. questions that it you know that, that uh comes about in in projection of guys yeah and i think i definitely agree with him i, I i'm also skeptical of how much player development at least you know in the current state of the nba can really improved or you know just talk, it's, it's difficult like you said to, to cite examples of guys who's who's like seen genuine feel improvements that are yeah that are something beyond like a learned read or you know you know improving some other skill like ball handling or, or you know or, or shooting which is obviously a difficult skill to improve that maybe will cover up for that lack of feel and i, I mean i just think i'm fascinated by especially especially like young players who display in high feel and and quick processors and things like that versus young players who don't like i mean i'm thinking like someone like cade cunningham versus someone like isaiah todd i mean todd is someone who's been like in the spotlight since he was very young a guy with the balls is very young and then i mean cade cunningham um has not been i mean at least to my knowledge in the spotlight and like a, a, a highly regarded prospect for since that young but i mean he's obviously a spectacularly good decision maker and you know his feel is is off the charts um as we know and those guys are similarly aged and you know have come i mean it's, it's possible to really know you know what their development tracks were like you know without knowing them but i mean it's it's likely that they it's possible they did similar things so you know i'm just interested about you know how young players really develop feel you know at those like very young ages you know and, and how that differs f- for guys because i mean I, I, i'm not sure like at what age the skill development and like in-game reps things like that become comp- complex enough to the point where where decision making is really improved or you know where where it really starts you know branching off for for guys who end up being high field players and guys who end up like being low field players because you know we assume that like humans aren't born as like high feel or low feel like that's something that's learned in, in some capacity so. no definitely and i think I, I don't even think in some capacity like it is learned right like yeah. all, this is all of, like when we talk about development i mean we could talk beyond, about this, beyond like innate like pattern yeah. recognition right, ability. Right. yeah yeah there's probably like innate pattern recognition stuff but when we're talking about development what we're talking about is learning right like it, it simply it's kind of simply put um and so i think max just two things so back to max's point um, with the G League, right? So, are tr- like the question is, I think, are trends in NBA player development trending towards that direction where you take a guy like who ha- who can be a ball handler and you stash him in the G League and say, "A, you're going to get these game reps here, right? And you're going to do this." And that's 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 how I would do it. I mean, I, I and I think that that's most people would maybe not be down with that. I'm not really sure. And yeah, then- I mean, I, th- I think it depends on the individual guy, right? Like where, where it needs to be a context where the element of a, of someone's game that you're trying to develop is the element that's challenged. Like uh, we talked about, about what the plan yeah. would be with Bulmaro with PD. I think it's a very interesting question because I, to some extent, like playing uh, in the G league, he would not necessarily be challenged in the right ways Whereas you need you need a, a place for him to develop where he is um, like taxed as an on ball guy, but um, you know cannot just cannot just you know dominate with his advantage creation and then say players aren't attuned enough to the to the scouting report where they they treat him like a scorer even though he doesn't have a threat to score like I, or like I, that would be very relevant to like someone like Halliburton like Halliburton continuing to play in in a uh, developmental context where everyone was treating him like he was a guy who, like he's a guy who is a real threat to score. I don't think would be beneficial for him if if you're trying to develop him as a, as a handler um, or a, like as an initiator. Um, 
but you know, you, you got, I think that's why it depends. Like generally I would say throwing guys into a G league situation, like where they can just have different looks thrown at them would be good. But I think it depends on the guy for, for some, for some guys, that's not going to be a beneficial developmental context. And I, I was going to, I was going to say the other thing is, is okay. So like, how do you use the G league and then B and maybe even this is like uh, G league is one a, and this is one B is how do you use your play, player development sessions in practice, outside of practice? Like, you know, these guys are in the facility all the time. And how are those used? Are you getting up shots or are they like, if it's a guy who needs to, who needs to speed up processing, is it a, are they creating a complex dynamic environment for that guy on a daily basis where he's getting reps uh, of doing making complex decisions, you know, like in practice or in his own individual development, or is it just like we're going to do some isolated ball handling drills and stuff like that? Yeah, uh, and I mean that's kind of the the problem with um, development in the NBA right now is that you have incentives that aren't aligned, right? Like you have an NBA team that's for the most part trying to be a good NBA team. They're not necessarily trying to devote their resources to developing some 19 year old, which is why I think that we do need some like infrastructural change in, in the way development uh, is structured for, for NBA teams. And I think that's probably what we're headed toward some, you know, some sort of Academy like system where there's actual investment in, in younger players. um, And, and like, that's, you know, that's all that they're asked to focus on in, in, you know, that given context. Right. Um, uh, sorry. No, go, go ahead, TJ. No, I was just going to say, just bringing it back to just like a more broad conceptual conversation about just skill development generally. So what I was going to say was, I kind of forgot what I was going to say, <laughs> but essentially like um, what, what people uh, understand skill to be is like muscle memory and a bodily thing. And really mm-hmm. Any skill, even if we're talking, we're not even talking about decision making anymore. We're talking about just dribbling, uh, passing, shooting, finishing. All of those skills are not, in fact, tied to your like muscle memory is a complete misnomer, right? And that's that's something that I've learned over the last couple of years in kind of trying to dive into some of the people who do like PhD level research on this stuff. Is that it's all tied to your central nervous system and to your motor system. It's motor skill, uh, and so it's really about your brain and myelination in your brain. Uh, and that transfers to your body rather than just being about moving your limbs in certain ways. And I think that was kind of the conversation that, that I had, I forget with, on, with PD, I forget who we were talking about, but it was about processing speed and how, um, that's just, you see it happen in the body, but really it's happening up here. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'm processing speed i I guess this this is kind of taking it back to the to the body level but something that i do think is i I think it was it was mentioned on that on that chris oliver pod that i've referenced now a few times but um it's isolating skills for both for evaluation but also for for development um so like the example that came to my mind was isaac okoro last year with um uh wheeler um, his high school team is that I think it was pretty evident that he was capable of of some high level passing, but he was definitely held back by his technical inability to handle the ball, to gather the ball. So you had to look for situations where those those elements were isolated. So a situation where he's on the move, say he's catching the ball off of a cut, he's on the move, and he then has to super quickly process and make a decision, and he makes a high level decision. So that tells you that. Isaac Okoro, you know, is capable of those decisions, 
but it's just something physical that's holding him back. And then, of course, this year, he, he I think, underwent a pretty significant handle improvement. And then, boom, he's looking like a pretty high-level wing passer because he's no longer as encumbered by the technical elements. So, I mean, just as a coach, how do you go about isolating skills like that so you so you actually know what the root cause of an issue is? Because, you know, with Isaac Okoro, the issue is not that he is a poor decision-maker in high school. The issue is that he can't dribble. Right, right. Yeah, I... I that's a great question and I don't know the answer to it. <laughs> and, and I think that's, that's what I'm trying to essentially try to figure out through all of this. And that's what we're all trying to figure out is we're all talking about skill development. Like the skill is passing, the skill is dribbling, but really at the end of the day, it's, it's tied back to the tactical, tactical awareness followed by technical ability. Right. And mm-hmm. so one, one thing that Chris and Brian McCormick always talk about is like, I don't care how you get it there. Just, that's as long as you get it there. It's like execute the decision. And then over time through rep, through game, like scenarios, through decision training, um, the technical will follow. So don't spend a million, you know, don't spend any time at all, which I, I used to do all the time. Right. Don't spend any time at all on throwing chess passes. Right. Just play a game and pass the ball. Um, and so embed, embed skills within a game. And that's what I do for like really small kids is embed the skill within a game rather than, you know, passing back and forth or working the technical over and over again. There's some place for that, but that's, that's a, that's the part. Right. And so what kind of to my point earlier about the body paragraph, right. Is start with a hole, start with a game, maybe go back to the part and work the technical, like, you know, flick your wrist when you pass and then go back to the hole. Yeah. I mean, integrating into a game thing makes a lot of sense. But I, I, that is an interesting point that you that you would th- you would like say just worry about getting the ball there because I mean to me watching prospects that's something that w- that concerns me like if if um you know Ty- Tyrese Halliburton without you know a very functional left hand can get passes to certain locations in college like I have skepticism that that's going to be possible in the NBA because the the competition level is increasing. So uh, is that just something that's that's not really a con- concern for you uh at, at, you know coaching in the context that you do or or do you think that um that like it is still important to to focus on on the like the technical aspects uh as well. Well, yeah, I and I would I I would say I I guess maybe I'm like um, I'm going back or something but like the first thing that I look at in, in, in any evaluation of a prospect, whether it be an NBA prospect or a high school that we're looking at, is can he pass with both hands? I don't know why, but that's like one of the first things that I look at is can you can you pass one hand left and one hand right? Uh, and then from there, I look at his feet. Uh, and so I look at things that I believe to be fundamental, right? So like um, do you have fundamental movement skills that allow you to do the things that you need to do? And then through time, at least at Swarthmore from what we do, you'll get the, like, you'll get as as many reads as you can get in practice. And so if you have those already, the processing speed will speed up. So actually I look at what, as an evaluator, I look at those fundamental. And and when I say fundamental, I mean, literal movements. Can you do both? Can, or you have ambidextery with your hands and your feet? And do you have, um, like I use fundamentals and adjective, like the basic, basic foundational movement things that like, can you pass with your left hand? I look at that first as an evaluator, whereas as a coach, I try to I try to develop that in some way and in, in embedding it into drills that I do. And I'll I'll talk about a drill and drill that I do in a second. But but I um I guess maybe I don't 
I haven't figured out a way to harp upon it as much as I should. There is no shortage of action going on with our partners over at betonline.ag. The sports world is slowly making its way back with the NBA announcing its return in late July. But right now, UFC, boxing, NASCAR, and international soccer have all resumed play, and BetOnline has the best odds slash lines for their best upcoming games and matches. Need more? BetOnline has simulated NFL, NBA, and UFC happening live every day for our devout gamblers to check out. BetOnline also offers hundreds of live casino games, poker tournaments, and the best props in the business. Visit BetOnline.ag on your computer or mobile device and join now to receive your welcome bonus. BetOnline.ag, your online wagering experts. Oh no! Those are the screams I used to make when I would cut myself shaving before I knew about Manscaped. Thank you Manscaped for turning my loud shrieks into multiple peaks. Men, start taking notes because Manscaped accidents are finally a thing of the past. The Manscaped Lawnmower 3.0 has been beautifully designed to reduce those painful nicks and tugs. This is their third generation trimmer, featuring advanced skin safe technology so you keep your bad boys nice and smooth. When I tell you this is premium, I mean premium. The battery will last up to 90 minutes so you can take a longer shave. The water resistant technology allows you to shave in the shower too. One of the coolest features is the LED light which illuminates grooming areas for closer and more precise trimming. Get 20% off and free shipping with the code armchair at manscaped.com. That's 20% off with free shipping at manscaped.com and use code armchair. Your balls will thank you. So, so, so I'm, I'm curious about, you know, a, a point you made earlier was about, you know, the the implementation of, ga- of, of games that are not five on five. So one on ones, two on twos, three on threes, and the value of those. Because, you know, I was reading something the other day, you know, about like the neuroscience of, of, of skill acquisition. And one of the one of the main points it talked about was was skill retention. You know, ultimately, if 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 a certain action or skill, you know, in not just in basketball, but in any field is, is fresh, is fresh in the mind, you know, the, the the brain will will be able to repeat it and and if not we'll have to, to, to pull it from somewhere and and you know that that article you know i can link it in, in on twitter or um after the show um you know talks about you know a, a way to implement that as a coach is to you know put it's just to keep challenging the uh, the brain or each specific skill in in different ways so is that kind of an application of you know the one-on-one two-on-two-three-on-three though you know it's fundamentally the same thing it, it's playing basketball but it's kind of you know applied in in a different situation because you know y- your reads are different and you're just seeing different things and things that you would never see in, in a full five-on-five game when the floor is shrunk or the or the the amount of players is reduced. Yeah, I mean, so, hmm. yeah. Uh, where was my mind there? Hold on. If you need, if you need a second to think, I can can jump in with yeah, another of the. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. So on on that uh, that podcast um, with with Chris Oliver, he was talking about uh, introducing rules into these different yeah. uh, games so that you can simulate situations. So like a fundamental problem in a one-on-one game or a two-on-two game is that like there's either no or very limited help defense. So you institute a rule where, you know, you can only dribble in a certain direction. So you have to say you have to dribble toward the rim. That's going to simulate certain game-like situations. So like if you're, if you're on the wing and you, the only thing that you can do is drive toward the rim then, or, or, or shoot, um, I, that's going to simulate like a closeout situation or something like that. Um, 
So that that was one of the things that that I took away from that podcast was, was that you like you can come up you can add these rules that start start to simulate game action even though it's not actually game action. I'm glad you jumped in there because that's exactly what I was, was <laughs> <laughs> to 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 Ben's question was was constraints right. So it's that's like the technical term for that is constraints based uh, coaching. But basically the idea is um, to keep the athlete or the athletes in an environment that is challenging enough, like that they're failing about 30% of the time or maybe 40%. Like that they, um, and so if you sense that, and this is very conceptual because this is something that like I'm still working on every single day when I do individual or group workouts or whatever is adding challenge through constraint. Right. So um, if, if it's one-on-one, it's like, I mean, there, there are various, like many different kinds of constraints and there's like all this research and literature about which ones are best. And they're constantly PhD students doing it's way, it's all way too uh, up there for me. But um, for instance, like just simply a time constraint is one thing. Like if, if, if it's one-on-one and the dude's scoring all the time, it's like, now, now okay, now you have three seconds. Like just something like that. Or uh, the one that Chris uh, always does a lot is you can't take more than one dribble not in the direction of the basket right so if it's if you dribble toward like you dribble at the basket and you dribble away you can't dribble away again you have to either like dribble and pull up or dribble away and counter right so that's that's um an example of constraints led um coaching in that kind of small side of games environment ben that you were talking about with the one-on-one or the two-on-two uh if it becomes too easy you add challenge through yeah, so you kind of got at this with the uh, the idea of fundamentals, um, but how much does like physical development factor into your uh, your understanding of player development as a coach? Because I mean, I kind of like it doesn't seem like it would be the purview within the purview of the coach, but I mean, these things are really important to you. Like, as a coach, uh, improving Obi Toppin's lateral agility would be a very high leverage development. Like that would like pretty radically change what you're able to do as a coach. So how much does that factor into the way you approach, uh, you know, developing your own players? Yeah. I mean, so I'm not even like, like I said, this is my first year at Swarthmore. I'm like the fourth assistant. I'm not, like, but when I was on the high school level and one of my, one of my closest colleagues at, at in, in my school is um, the strength and conditioning coach. I had all I like as I got into this learning about strength or about player development, I started to learn about movement skills and strength and condition, and like how to integrate strength and conditioning into um, coaching. So that's like that's an area that I am uh, still very much uh, a novice in, and I will probably remain novice in. But what I think the I think the answer is is a greater integration of strength and conditioning into the development atmosphere or environment. Right. And, and I, I think I put this in the, in the outline. I, I'm going to just keep going back to Chris Oliver. Cause he's, he's my, uh, I don't know. He's the guy, but he had a recent uh, podcast with a guy named Corey Schlesinger, who's now the head of the uh, sun strength and conditioning. And he talks about that. That's basically what they talk about the entire time uh, is the integration of strength and conditioning into development. Yeah, I mean, because, I mean, talk about, like, 
black boxes, like strength and conditioning for someone just on the outside is, I think it's like the, you know, the most impenetrable thing. Um, so yeah, it, I, I, I really would love to be able to like pick the brain of, of, you know, someone working in it on an NBA, uh, strength and conditioning staff to just, you know, know how, how they, you know, how their approach, uh, how their approach interplays with like that of the coach, the coach's desires, like, you know, the, just, I mean, front office wide, even just visions of, of a player and, and, you know, how they can augment their themselves physically and like consequently their games. Uh, I mean, it's, it's obvious. It's like a very high leverage thing. Uh, and really like, I mean, like you said, uh, for the average person trying to even read up about it, uh, it's, it's tough, to, tough to understand. Yeah, I have a very layman's understanding of it, but I think one – so, like, what I would say is simply um, that the co- – at me as a coach, like, I almost don't want to touch movement skills at all. I want that all – like, if, if in a perfect world, right, if I had it my way, like, I would, know, I would almost not want to teach how to defensive slide. I don't want to teach how to close out. Like that, that is all in the, under the purview of a strength and conditioning coach, because the movement, the movement based stuff, I just have such a novice understanding of that. And, and yet I think as coaches, a lot of times we, we want to not act like we know, but like we have to, we're in, in charge or whatever. And so this is the way you close that when in fact that might, that might be suboptimal and the strength and conditioning coach might be like, no, this is, this is totally like, you wouldn't do that in a game. That's not what you do in a game. Um, so I would say, um, yeah, that's just my kind of take on. It. I can see movement, but I can't really teach it. Yeah, it's it's kind of it's fascinating to think where, um, like, where coaching ends and entirely like physical development starts. Like, it, you know, is it something like, you know, can you teach? verticality at the rim or is that something that the, only the physio staff can handle like is that is that tied to a guy's you know core strength in a, in a way that you know the coach can't can't really teach that the way that he would want to that's up to the physio staff or or the example of closing out is i think is very valid too yeah i mean so actually that's a great that's a great example because i think at um i i think as a coach like something like verticality at the rim you can teach that in practice by just harping upon it again and again. Like we want to be vertical at the rim. We want to be vertical at the rim. And that's like pretty much the most you can do. And then the other, like the other stuff is up to like core strength and uh, body positioning and all of this, all of the movement based stuff that really uh, that's, that's the athlete self-organizing the body to be able to do it in the game context. But like at Swapper, we, I would say one of the things that, we do like crazy well. I, this is my first year again. Like I was basically applying the law and didn't really know anything. I was kind of observing. But one of the things that we do incredibly well is verticality at the rim. And one of the drills <laughs> we do in practice is like our guards just sprint back to the paint, turn around, and then jump up and get vertical in a live game situation with a guy coming at them. And we do that three times a week, uh, and everyone gets a bunch of reps. And it's crazy how good our, our – specifically our guards are at it. Because those are the guys, like, and our bigs are actually, actually, never mind. Our bigs are amazing at it too. Or the two guys we have this year, and it, yeah. it's just crazy. Uh, so that was that's something that we harp upon every day, or we do every day in practice as a live game like drill, uh, and it, it does translate. 
Yeah, I mean, it makes sense. Like I mean, talking about the, you know the line where, where coaching ends and where strength and conditioning and, and you know that physio stuff begins. I mean, I, it kind of like think of it as like a two pronged as like a two pronged approach. I mean, there's decision making, there's the decision, and then and then there's the movement. You know, like 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 even if a player can see you know can see an action unfolding as a health defender, if they don't have the movement skills to, you know, act on that action and, and go make a play, then it doesn't really matter if they see uh, the rotation, um, well, if they understand when and where and how they're supposed to rotate, um, if, if they can't get there quick enough, then it doesn't, then that's like, like a whole separate part of it that, again, is probably not something that the coaches can really do much about because, again, like they obviously can, can tell you where to go and, and what to see. But, I mean, most in the realm of, you know, just straight-up coaching, it, it's difficult to, to teach a guy how to move quicker or, you know, or, you know, like, like, like how to cover space more efficiently or, you know, how to maneuver through screens, um, like, you know, in terms of flipping your hips and, and, and getting skinny over screens and, you know, making yourself – more pliable so I'm, I'm just curious about how you go about you know try to, try to connecting those two things there so. right those that, players become future coaches yeah that's, that's, <laughs> that's like the next frontier for for me to try to understand that stuff i think like i have a very very novice level understanding of that and i like i said i have i have one colleague who i'm close with who i like have worked with a little bit i'm like all right you want to you want dudes to do a euro step well what if they can't explode off of one foot then a euro step right so like so like on identifying the specific movement skills that um that bat that he thinks basketball players needed and then there's another guy in philly that i i've um i've gone and observed and talked to him about that kind of stuff too just like all right so what are the specific things because like really it's you need to be an athlete but there are some specific things for basketball like explosion off of one foot explosion off of two feet um, that that are specifically like can be trained in the strength and conditioning environment, and I won't be the one training them. But uh, yeah, the, but again, like you guys as evaluators, that's what I look for as an evaluator too, like movement. Yeah, my guess would be that what needs to be trained varies a lot on a player by player basis. So, how much are you able to tailor that sort of uh, both physio development and um, just you know the skill development that you do in in those game scenarios. How much are you able to tailor that on a player by player basis? I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> I gotta ask. I gotta ask. Uh, my my. I think. I think. I. I think the answer would be. I, I think this is what strength and conditioning coaches would say: is that it shouldn't be that tailored. It should be tailored based on player type, perhaps. But maybe not that tailored based on uh, in the individual player himself. Um, but I'm not. I'm not certain of that response. Following the senseless murders of Ahmaud Arbery, Breonna Taylor, George Floyd, and countless other Black community members at the hands of police officers, we want to ensure that we do what we can to make a tangible impact on those communities as we grow. Armchair Media will be issuing four $500 scholarships per semester to aspiring Black creatives. If you've ever been dismissed as having an unrealistic career path, if you've ever butted heads with parents or teachers because they don't recognize exactly what you want to do with your life, if you have feared to express yourself or put your work into the world due to 
to potential backlash, we strongly encourage you to apply. We recognize there are creatives out there who may have bypassed college to pursue other avenues, who didn't get into college because their passions didn't translate to collegiate testing, or who did not have access to the financial means to pay for college. This is why there are only three requirements for eligibility. Black creative, under the age of 21, and you submit a project, graphic design, photography, writing, audio, video, journalism, creative writing, to scholarship at armchairallamericans.com. That's scholarship at armchairallamericans.com. Yeah, that's unexpected. It makes some sense, and it's, it's very fascinating. But I, I know, like, one of the things that I think, I think Zach Milner brought up this point, that even if the hypothesis that Patrick Williams is uh, lacking lateral quick, quickness stems from his imbalanced quad, quads and, 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 um, and calves, even if that hypothesis is true that it's not necessarily the case that an NBA team will pinpoint that and be able to rectify it. Or I know that I had talked with, with Ross Homan, I think it was after Robert Woodard's freshman year. So I think it was, it was like coming into this year that Woodard, like his mechanics on his jumper look good for the most part. And he has massive splits. I think uh, when he hops into a shot versus when he won twos into it. Um, But like, what are the odds that a development program is actually going to pinpoint that, pinpoint that and realize that that's the thing that we need to change um so i I, yeah i'm i'm kind of i'm very fascinated by the by the idea of like personalizing these things and the player type thing makes sense i it's just not an not an answer i would have expected right no and i don't know if that's the right answer (laughs) like i said but, but i think i think what you just said about that personalization piece is why it's so fascinating the integration why you're fascinated by why i think i'm fascinated by why the fast why there's the integration between evaluation and development is so interesting right because when you notice those splits in value in an evaluative context then how do you attack them in a in a developmental context and and so like for instance I'll, i'll give you one story one of uh a former high school player that i had who's now like fringe g league ish what i we worked out last summer and this is when i was still like experimenting with a lot of stuff um and sean he played at colgate and he played um in ireland for a year and then he was trying to be in the g league and so we were working basically i was like all right well let me work on your shot let's try to make you a little more of a hop shooter and uh there are like several drills that i do to do that because i i pretty i believe pretty heavily that like the hop is a way that uh, a self-organizational strategy that players need to have in a game, right? And need to be able to do. And it kind of, I, instead of attacking his mechanics on the upper part of his body first, I attacked the lower body first. And this was just kind of purely experimental. And it changed the mechanics and he became a better shooter because of it. And he actually had a shot at the G League where I don't think he would have otherwise maybe. But like, eh, he probably would have. That's I didn't really do much. I was just messing around and he trusted it. So that kind of stuff. Like I noticed something, a hitch in his shot and I thought it could be uh, through evaluating. I noticed the hitch and then I thought it could be attacked through integrating a different footwork pattern. Um, and so that's where, that's why that fat, that integration of development and evaluation is pretty fascinating. To me. Yeah. Like evaluation is, is worth something, but it's not worth nearly as much as being able to say, okay, I've evaluated this and now here's how we improve it. Exactly. And that's, that's kind of my whole thing with, that I took away from Alon's class was I took, I got the evaluative, not as not nearly as good as you guys have, or like other evaluators have, because I, I haven't just haven't done it nearly as much as you have back to my parallel parking uh, example. Right. Like, but I got those 
those granular evaluative skills. And when it came time to doing big boards and like tiers and like deciding if, if, if I wanted to rank like Admon Gilder or Ryan Klein, like number five <laughs> on my list, like that's when all of my, all of my uh, like interest dropped. Right. So I was like, all right, well, I, this is a really valuable skill for me to have as a coach. And now how do I try to um, integrate it into player development? I did want to ask you, I'll ask you guys later about big boards, but I was talking to PD a little bit about this and his, his kind of like not understanding big boards or not, I don't, I don't really get the tiers, but we, we'll talk about that later. Yeah, we can, we can yeah. do that. We can get to that in part two. Yeah. I'm very, you know, I, I'm super interested in the, you know, the, the story about, you know, fixing, fixing that player's lower body in terms of shot because i feel like at least in the mainstream i think like a lot of the most talked about you know mechanical flaws are you know upper body like whether it's having a hitch in someone's jumper or or someone's elbows flaring out extensively or you know something to that accord uh where i think like a lot of the root like root issues with these like with these shooters can be talked about you know in their lower body i mean it's i mean it's relevant for quite a few guys in this class i mean the first one that comes to mind is you know josh green with his really really awful i mean valgus yeah Yeah, i I was thinking penny yeah, Denny. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, there's Denny as well, who like splays out his legs. There's, I mean, there's Tyrell Terry, who I mean, I think a lot of Terry's comes from just lack strength. of lower body strength. Yeah. And then there's Lamelo, of course, who I mean has cleaned that up a lot um, over you know the last couple of years. From you know, at, you know, obviously well, when he was 15, shooting shooting pull up threes at, at Chino Hills, he obviously didn't have the anywhere no, nowhere near the lower body or the core strength to, to actually execute those but i mean now I, I mean even when he when he when he should have you know as like a high school senior he his legs would fall out all over the place and, and he's cleaning it up quite a bit and i think that's you know an important consideration and an evaluation is that you know like these these things i mean not just for shooting mechanics but might not have as, as straightforward a fix as as we think they do and you know that just makes this this all the more complicated and you know all the more difficult well, for us you know, what i would say now, just just one thing on the uh, uh the note is like basically i think what i've found is that what you need to give the player as a coach is different self-organization strategy like not strategies self-organization bodily self-organization uh things and so like in an isolated training environment that's what i'm kind of trying to do to go back to a very earlier question about like how do you do skill is i'm trying to give them different self-organization strategies than they might already have so if a guy already has like a one two like if he's if he's just one twoing every time into it i'm going to try to integrate something like that does that make sense sorry you got the tj is is miming this for yeah. the listener. This unfortunately isn't, you know, a YouTube podcast. I know, yeah, that's the next one here for you guys. <laughs> <laughs> the, Joe yeah, Rogan, the Joe Rogan experience of uh, <laughs> whatever. I, I am curious what you think, like, at, as a coach, when you watch someone like Denny shoot, where he has just this, like, wildly inconsistent lower body, where he's, you know, fighting himself. Like, he, it looks like he his body wants to sway, but then he's fighting himself, and he has his legs splaying out, and he's got just all of these inconsistencies like what do you think when you're watching Denny as, as a coach like how would you go about uh breaking that down and rebuilding it well I haven't I honestly haven't seen a ton of Denny but I do and you guys discussed this I think on your uh pod with PD there there were recent videos of him shooting yeah right yeah and I yeah and I th- I thought that his hop looked really good in those videos I, I don't know 
Yeah, I honestly I don't remember yeah. too well. I didn't I didn't study them thoroughly, and I haven't watched the game since the BSL started back up. But I have seen some of the clips, and like he's still got his legs flying in opposite directions. Like right. he's still he's still like looks like he's fighting his lower body. It's it's yeah. I mean, I I think I. I don't really put much stock in like an empty gym thing. I know they're they're like you know as as a keen observer of the Celtics, like there there's always lots of stuff with Romeo Langford's shot, and I'm just like I I don't know I don't really care all that much until I see it in the game and then then I'll note changes. But yeah, I mean it's it's definitely something that's really hard to understand, and like we have all of these weird proxies to sort of try to project shooting, but we don't even really know how good those are for projecting shooting. Like, I mean, we've talked about it a lot, like no one has a statistically significant sample of runners. And even if runners are indicative of touch, like does touch actually lead to shooting improvement? I, I don't know that anyone actually knows that. Right. Right. Yeah. That was another question I have for you guys for stats, which again, isn't for another time, but I would to go back to the Denny video, what I would, what I, how I would approach it. And again, I would have to go back and look at his shot beforehand and see it like his legs flying over the place how I would approach it is to try to give him a different self-organization strategy, like a hop, like a really like, you know, driving feet into the ground, like a hop, and then drill that over and over again. And then after that, and I, I like try to, in the isolated environment, try to mess with him. Right. So like, so, so one thing that I do when I'm working out with myself is I literally, I stand and I, and I don't really know if this is good or bad or whatever. I'll stand with a basket here and I'll throw the ball over my head and turn around and then and then try to step into it however the wherever the ball is just find the ball and step into it so that's one isolated thing rather than just you know how do most people shoot when they work out by themselves they spin the ball yeah. out in front they step into it in rhythm yeah. so i would try to just i would try to give him that different self organization strategy and then from there mess with his central nervous system and mess with his motor system uh, to challenge him yeah, I talked about. I mean, I had seen like again. I think it's just putting like the putting value into like. Sh I, I mean, yes, I mean the Denny mechanics looked good in the video, but they were just empty gym spot up threes. And I think his and the same thing over yeah, and over, over and over. Again. And I think like like Denny like his like wide open spot up threes like for for a while like have been like okay like his mechanics like aren't that terrible but, but then like you know i i've seen a bit of the new bsl stuff and when he shoots like any sort of pull up or like off anything but like a free catch and shoot like like all, all of the lower body issues would turn i mean he right. shot like a contested mid-range pull up and it was atrocious with the lower body and again i think that like i i, I mean i i can't i obviously can't speak to what he's done with, with the cameras off and i'm and lots of like the making a bunch of spot ups in, in a row is for show and it's performative but i mean like it, it, again it's just not super useful in terms of challenging and i remember you know a, a video i saw a long time ago of of, of trey young working with his shooting coach where his shooting coach would was like he was working on catching like bad passes mm -hmm. and and like catching and shooting off of those which i mean just listening to talk like just it makes a lot more sense as I talked about this. You talked about this. You know, just challenging like your nervous system and like challenging your your muscle your muscle memory in quotes or in your pattern recognition and your ability to like adapt in certain situations. Because I mean, and like I mean, besides the fact that that's like more game like app, game applicable, like like you're not going to get a perfect chest pass very often in a game situation. Like you'll you'll get high passes, low passes. You'll get passes that are off. But but again, just like giving your giving your brain a, a different stimulus to react to and like just like a different 
like like schema to enter into your brain, like, like a different situation that your brain can say, okay, like, like I've seen something similar to this in like in my workout, and like this this right. this translates rather than just like shooting standstill spot ups at an empty gym. Which the Trey Young thing is great is a great example. Like that's because I know the exact video you're talking about, or like he probably does it a lot, right? But he's just like yeah, I'm sure there's just throwing it. And what happened? What what? And that's just called. There's no decision making going on. There's no there's no like. There's no thinking. There's no. It's just it's just brain reaction and then body self organization, right? And so yeah. he has to he has to differently organize his body or adapt to whatever wherever the ball is coming in, and then and then get it into his pocket from position one to position two, and then shoot it. Um, and that's that's kind of how I would go after like someone like Denny. And with Denny, like it's not going to happen right away, right? Like he, it, but um. Through time, it, with the right approach, I think it would. And then I, I would give another, just one more example. And this is a guy that I'll, I'll give you the the handle for is this heat shooting coach. Um, so, like, in addition to the stuff like bad passes, which seem a little more game like, he'll do stuff where it's like throw the ball out, right? Go hop, go hop into it, right? Look, look, throw the ball out from under the basket, hop into it, turn all the way around. Put the ball around your body and then shoot it, right? Like, which is what well, you would never do in a game, but it's just it just messes with you in a way that that actually leads to transfer. Yeah, uh, I mean, I think that this this has come full circle very nicely because it kind of it illustrates the like folly of these empty gym shooting videos because it's not it's not an issue of it's really easy to shoot when there are no defenders contesting you it's an issue of you get you you're repeating this scenario that is not it's not a real scenario it's removing all of the all of the stimulus that makes playing basketball difficult Mm -hmm. uh and that's like that's the you know reason why why these empty gym videos are pretty useless it's it's that like when denny is not standing completely still able to hop into his shot the exact way that he has the previous 400 times in the last hour, things get wonky. Like your, your brain starts to do weird things. Um, but I mean, I, I guess you guys can have like, I guess last chances to, to sort of, uh, opine on that if you want, but I feel like we've come, come for full circle nicely for this, for this first episode. And we can, you know, we can, uh, move on to part two shortly if you guys want. For sure. And I would just add one thing to that. And, and it's, it's, it's again, full, like you said, full circle it's back to the, the beginning that I was talking about with decisions. In addition to it, it not emulating the game environment in any way it does. It also doesn't emulate the game environment in the very, in the most fundamental way, which is that the first part about shooting in a game is very simply the decision to shoot the ball. Right. And so yeah. It totally removes so that, the decision. That's what, that's what it is, and Chris will talk about this all the time, it's called block training, right? And block training, actually for shooting, I don't have as much of a – I think for shooting, that's that can happen because a player needs to develop confidence and rhythm and all of those things. Um, but that is that is block training is there's no decision involved, and then from there there's none of those kind of self-organizational uh, challenges that you would face in a game. Yeah, I mean, if, right. if basketball is fundamentally a you know a game of decisions, like I, f- I feel like we've we've all like driven that home a bunch in this in this episode. Then like the least basketball related thing you could possibly do is Shooting a drill that, com- that completely removes decisions. Yeah. yeah, yeah. All right, so 
I think we're gonna cut it here for for part one um for our first episode with with TJ again. Thank thanks thank you very much TJ to to coming on. Uh, you can follow TJ on Twitter at I don't actually have it up. So what is your at on Twitter? TJ TJ F E R R I C. All right, so yeah, make sure to follow TJ. Like I said, fascinating stuff. Um, as you've heard on the pod. Um, so go follow him on Twitter. And by the way, thanks for the follow. Ben just followed me thirty minutes. Before. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I didn't realize I wasn't following you. So <laughs> yeah, I, I same thing happened with me. I actually I didn't realize either. Um, yeah, yeah. But I didn't exactly. You <laughs> it's okay. But yeah, uh, again, you can follow the pod at Prep Number Two Pro Pod on Twitter. Uh, you can follow me at Ben underscore Pfeiffer underscore. Uh, follow Max at Max A Carlin. And with that. Um, That'll do it for part one uh, with TJ. So we'll see you later.